Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you brought your Bibles, I'd like for you to follow along. It's a very familiar story there. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to go ahead and start in. We start a new series today called Sovereign. Really excited about it. Three weeks, and I think that it's going to help you. It'll, I've already gotten good feedback this morning. I just think that it's going to be helpful for us. It's really appropriate for where we are as a country and just, just in history. It just, it's appropriate. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate Passover. Passover was a festival, uh, but it was really more of a remembrance meal where Jewish people would get together and have a meal and remember what had happened hundreds of years earlier when the Israelites were in Egyptian slavery. And they had had their last meal in Egypt, and the next morning they were going to get up and they were going to leave Egypt. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. They started as a family, they turned into a nation, and they were slaves. And from the very beginning, really, all they'd ever known was slavery, and they had prayed and prayed and prayed to God. For 400 years, they had prayed to God. 400 years. We pray for four days. If God hadn't showed some kind of activity in four days, we're like, we're not even sure we believe in God anymore, right? Like, 400 years. Can you imagine praying that long? 400 years, the prayers go unanswered. God is not moving And God sends them a deliverer in Moses, and Moses says, tomorrow we're leaving. And tonight, an angel of death is going to pass over the land of Egypt, and he is going to kill the firstborn in every single family that does not have the blood of the lamb over the door. So the Israelites, taking Moses at his word, slaughtered a lamb, had a meal, and put the blood on the doorpost. And that night, an angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, And the next morning, Pharaoh of Egypt basically said, get out of here. You may go now. And that was the last meal, the last supper, and the last time that the Israelites would eat in Egypt. The next day, they packed up everything they owned. They took some things that the Egyptians gave to them. We we see in Scripture that they actually, the Egyptian people gave them stuff to take with them. It's like, just get out of here. Scripture says that they loaded them up with silver and gold, and they left Egypt and headed for what would be known as the promised land. 1,400 years after that event, Jesus is going to gather with his disciples for a Passover meal. They had done this before in better times. In the past, they had gathered for the Passover meal, and things were great. Jesus was a rock star. He was a celebrity. He was somewhat of a cultural icon. Everybody knew his name. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to hear him speak. Jesus was really famous, and thousands of people would flock to hear Jesus speak. The disciples would feel like they were rock stars just because they were hanging out with Jesus, and everything was great, and and they had all this momentum, and it seemed like every miracle was bigger and better, and every crowd was bigger and better, and the disciples were just, had a front row seat to all this great stuff going on. But as the disciples are getting ready for this thing that we would come to call the Last Supper, This time, things weren't going so well. Things had turned. There were rumors of people trying to arrest Jesus, trying to isolate him from the crowd so that they could arrest him and get him alone. And they accused him of all kinds of things. The disciples knew that if Jesus went down, they would go down with him. And then Jesus began to talk about his death. 
He talked about being taken, and the disciples just kind of filtered all that stuff out because in their world, much like to our thinking, in their world, if God is around, if Jesus is there, then it's up and to the right. It's all good. If God's there, it's good. If God's there, there's forward momentum. If God is with you, if God is moving around you, things get better because wherever God shows up, things get better. Whenever God shows up, there's more certainty, not less certainty. There's good things, not bad things. But they found themselves at a time when things were not going well. In fact, normally Jesus would tell them where they were going to have their Passover meal, and on this particular evening, he did not. Here it is evening, Jesus still hasn't told them where they're going to celebrate Passover. He just basically said, hey, where, where, when I go into Jerusalem, things are going to get really, really bad. And, you know, you would be within your bounds to ask the disciples, well, you know, to ask with the disciples of Jesus, well, if that's true, I mean, if things are going to get bad, if we go into Jerusalem, why are we going to Jerusalem? For them, it was as if Jesus had a death wish. He was going to walk right into the jaws of death, and, and he's basically saying, things are going to get bad, <laughs> come follow me. They get to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they stop, and they wait for the sun to set, and then Jesus sends two guys into town to meet a mysterious man who would take them to a mysterious place. And somehow Jesus had prearranged a Passover meal for the disciples, but he had not told his disciples where that would be. Because this was a time when Jesus wasn't sure he could even trust his disciples and it would turn out that he could not. He didn't want anybody to know where they would be because he didn't want to be isolated from the crowds and be taken before it was time for him to do that. So they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of darkness. No big celebration, no big group of people singing Hosanna as had been the case just a week before. None of the other things that they had experienced along the way with Jesus, big crowds, adoring people, everybody wanting to get close to Jesus, none of that. They sneak in under cover of darkness and they go to this home and it was strange, and it was eerie, and there was no certainty. And Jesus begins the conversation like this, Mark 14, verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And nobody in the room raised their hand and said, Will Jesus betray you to whom? They knew the answer to that question. The momentum had shifted and things were not going well. He added to the end of that, that sentence, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And then he said, one who is eating with me. That punctuated the insult. To eat with someone in that culture is like eating in our culture. I say this all the time, but when you eat with someone, that's one of the most intimate things you can do with somebody is to share a meal with them. So, you know, you think about it, most of the people that you're sharing meals with are people that you're pretty close to. It would be like you having people come over to your house for a dinner, and halfway through dinner, you look at them and you say, by the way, I know you're going to betray me. It would just be awkward, weird. I've said this many times. When we share meals with each other, it's just, there's an intimacy to it. That was true then as well. And Jesus said, one of you who's chosen to gather with me around this sacred table to celebrate this amazing thing that God has done, 
one of you eating with me is going to betray me. Verse 19, they were saddened, and one of them, one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Verse 20, it's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. The Bible is full of stories and full of narratives written and taking place in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty. And we as families and as a nation and as a culture, we face uncertainty now like we have never faced it before. And when that's the case, this is the perfect place to run. When you don't know where to turn or what to do or what's going to happen next, Scripture is a great place to go. Because your favorite story, your favorite Bible story, your favorite proverb or, or Scripture or, or psalm, that thing that you love to have repeated again and again, it is written and it reflects a time of extraordinary uncertainty for the people that are contained in those particular stories. This is not a book about rich people having fun. This isn't a book about, hey, everything went great and I got a job on Monday and I got a raise on Tuesday and I got a promotion on Thursday and my kids got into the right school and, you know, my kids are doctors and lawyers and successful and, you know, we got everything we wanted. There were none of those kind of stories, none of those wrinkle-free life kind of things in the stories that you read about in Scripture. Everybody lived happily ever after. You don't see that. No divorce in the land. Every single passage, every single thing that we draw hope and security from, all those things come from troubled times, from those lives of people who discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, God was still certain. In the midst of uncertainty, when you couldn't even trace God's hand, when it seemed like he was absent to the 10th degree, they discovered that God was still trustworthy. If ever there was a time to pick up this book and read it, now is that time. This is where we find the story that many of us are familiar with about a teenager named Joseph who finds himself at the bottom of a well with his brothers up on the ground level and they're having a discussion over him as he's down in this hole. Should we kill him or sell him? Should we kill him or sell him? Can you imagine? I think we should sell him. No, I think we should kill him. Hey, guys, I'm right here. I know some of you have sibling rivalries, but doubtful they ever threw you in a hole and debated whether to sell you or kill you. You read the story and you discover that, believe it or not, God was with Joseph. You read the story about King David. The Messiah would come through the lineage of King David. But one day, King David wakes up to the understanding that one of his sons has assembled an army and is going to bring it against him and is going to try to kill him and replace him as the king of Israel. And I know we all have trouble with our kids, but have they ever assembled a whole army to come after you? And you read that, that story and you discover that God was in the middle of that story and God was with David. We all heard the story growing up about a mother who had a baby boy. 
a son. And like any mother, she loved her son, and she was told that Pharaoh had decided to murder all the baby boys because there were too many Israelites in the land. And there's so much emotion around babies and, and children anyway, and, and you know we pray for them. But this mother wrapped her, her newborn son. She puts him in a basket. She puts him in the, the Nile River, and she floats him out into the river as if to say, if I'm going to have to choose between the butchers of Egypt and the crocodiles of the Nile River, I'll take my chances with the river. And you read the story and you discover that God was there. And that little baby was found and they named him Moses and he would become the deliverer of a nation. But before she ever knew the end of the story, where was God in that for her? And that was the reflection of the story of another baby that would be rescued from a similar fate. Mary and Joseph discover that Herod, in his jealousy, has decided to wipe out all the babies in Bethlehem. He's decided that uh, he's heard this rumor that there's going to be this king born that's going to grow up to be the king of the Jews. And, and so he decides that he's going to wipe them all out and all the babies in the surrounding area. And, and every single baby was murdered. But Mary escaped with Jesus to, of all places, Egypt. And there was weeping and wailing in the land. And you read the story and you discover that God was right there in the middle of it all. God was in control. God was, as we would say, sovereign. That all those stories, every single one of them, as you read them, it seems as if they had spun out of control. All the momentum was backward momentum. It doesn't feel like there's any serious forward momentum. And all God's activity seems to have ceased. And the bad guys won. The evil king won. The gods of the other empires won. And you read those stories and you discover that in the midst of incredible uncertainty, here is God and nothing has changed and he is still sovereign. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating with Jesus... While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, oh yeah, by the way, this is not what you think it is. This is different. You've been eating Passover meals since you were children, but from now on, when you eat it, and then it says he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. What do you mean, this is your body, Jesus? Come on, here's all that death talk again. We don't want to hear that, Jesus. If you're from God... You shouldn't be talking like that. You know, if you're from God, things are going to turn around. It's going to get better. It's not going to get worse. If you're from God, then everything has to go well. If you're from God, then there's more certainty. There's not less certainty. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he foreshadows what is going to take place hours later when he will be nailed to a cross in front of the very eyes that are listening to him say all this. They leave that room, they go out through the Kidron Valley, they come up at the foot of the, the Mount of Olives into Gethsemane. And on the way, the news gets worse when Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, not only will one of you betray me, verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
And Peter's following along, and he gets, he's heard enough of this nonsense. He's heard enough of the doom and gloom and the negative bad news, enough about death and betrayal and arrests, and he's kind of had it, and he says, there's no way I'm going to allow this to happen because if God is with you, if you're the son of God, this isn't how the story goes. There's more certainty. There's more faith. There are more miracles. There's more activity. There's more intervention. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not, because <laughs> that's not how the story's supposed to go. Lord, even if everybody else abandons you, I will not. I will stick with you till the very end. And later that same evening, with all of that faith and all of that good intention, he would listen to a young girl accuse him of having spent time with Jesus, and he would immediately deny that, and he would curse throughout the night, and he would say on two other occasions, I never knew him. Here's my question for you this morning. As we move into this series and as we continue to experience uncertainty in our own life and in our own space with regard to family and jobs and children and culture and leadership, government, economy, retirement, scholarships, education, with all that uncertainty, Here's the question. Can you trust God? Can you trust God? Can you maintain faith in God when there's absolutely no evidence that he is working and there's no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you continue to embrace faith in God as a personal heavenly father when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Now, I'm not saying that there's not activity I'm saying you don't see the evidence of it. I'm saying you don't detect it. You think there is none in our culture, in our world. Your answer to that question will determine your response to the continuing uncertainty that our country and our culture and our world experiences on a daily basis. Our answer to that question will determine our response to the uncertainty in our lives with our children, with our homes, with our parents, with our families. And here's the dilemma, and for three weeks I'm going to keep pointing to this because it's so important, especially for Americans who equate God and prosperity. And why wouldn't we? I mean, we have been so incredibly blessed in this country. We've just come to understand that if God is on your side, then you get blessed. If God's on your side, everything is up and to the right. If God is on your side, good things happen, not bad things. If God is on your side, everything is certain, everything's locked down, everything's good. We equate God with forward motion. Most of us have experienced nothing but forward motion. We equate God's blessing with that, and we, we equate it with physical, tangible blessing. And why wouldn't we? That's been our experience. For some of our families, that's been our experience for generations. But I suspect that if I could sit down with these disciples, if we could, if we could sit down with them and ask them this question, gathered around this table, um, you know, if we could have asked them months later, hey guys, when was the darkest moment as you followed Jesus? When did you have the least amount of hope, and when did you start to think maybe we made a mistake following these guys. When were the darkest moments? 
And I think they would have looked back and they would have said to you and me, it began when we were gathered around that table that night and we realized things are not going to get better. It began around that table that night when he promised us that things would get worse. And not only would one of us betray him, but we would all scatter. And within a few hours, we had all fallen away. And the one man who had said he would never fall away would deny him three times by sunrise. We saw him arrested. We saw him tried. We saw him die. You want to know the darkest hours for us? It was in those hours when we realized that we had completely wasted our time and we realized God is not up to anything here. And then if we were to say, well, where in your time with Jesus do you think that he was doing his greatest work? Was it the healing of the lame guy? Maybe it was the healing of the blind guy. Maybe it was when Jesus called Lazarus to come forth out of that stinking tomb that he'd been in for four days. Lazarus, come forth. When did you feel it the most? When did you feel God's presence the most? And I think that they would have said, in those same hours, when it seemed as if God was doing his least, those hours when it seemed as if he was absent and missing, in those darkest hours, God was doing his finest work. And in those darkest hours, when it seemed as if God was inactive, he was most active. Because those darkest hours were the epicenter of the salvation of mankind. There are the hours that literally for thousands of years, people would look back to those times and rejoice in God's goodness and graciousness to us. But had you asked them in the moment, they would have said, game over, waste of time, not a man of God, we have wasted our life. That is a difficult message for those of us who are American Christians. And yet it is our story for those of us who have chosen to follow God and decided to place our faith in Jesus. For many of us, that's our experience. He seems to take broken things and do his most amazing work. He seems to wait until the last minute to do some of the most amazing things. And he tends to do it in ways other than we would choose. We would never allow things to get as bad as God seems to allow them to get. We would step in. We would see it getting horribly bad, and we would say, okay, there's enough of that. I'm going to step in and stop that. And God seems to let it go further than that. And that's when we struggle, and that's when we have difficulty. The greatest things of God seem to begin with the greatest messes. The most amazing things of God are often launched at times of incredible brokenness. This is just what God does. But the question is, will we maintain faith when we cannot see his hand? And as our faith begins to stutter and to quake and to shake beneath our feet a little bit, as we look to the left and the right at the circumstances and we begin to doubt, now more than ever, no book has been more important than this book. This is the book we need to return to. Because all these stories and the story of our salvation was birthed at a time of extraordinary darkness and uncertainty. And you say, well, Brett, 
That's neat. <laughs> that's neat, and that might even be a little bit inspirational, but that's not going to help me get my job back. That won't get me a commission. That won't heal me. That, that's not going to fix my marriage. That won't bring back my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter, Brett. I understand what you're trying to say. That may all be well and good, but that doesn't make me well. And you're right. And one of the big frustrations for me, at Cross Lane, we are constantly trying to help people and figure out how to solve problems and, and build bridges and make things better. And I've said it, I said it this week to someone, you know, my whole life is oriented to helping people. And then I get introduced into situations where I cannot help. I can't do a single thing to take away the pain and the grief and the, the stuff that's going on, and I can't fix it. I can't fix it, and it's so frustrating. But here's what I know. Although I know that the truth I've shared today doesn't change anything about the circumstances, here's what it does. It allows you to embrace uncertainty with a level of certainty that God is in control. And although life is uncertain, God is certain. We used to sing a song as little kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. And having that knowledge and embracing that, it's still true, even if it's with a white-knuckled intensity. It keeps us from making decisions that will just further complicate the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It allows us to go to bed at night and know that there is there is a way to have peace, even in the midst of the storm. It will teach us to keep an eye out for the activity of God that may otherwise take us by surprise, as it often took the people in Scripture, the characters in Scripture, by surprise. They weren't expecting God to show up and do the things that he did, and all of a sudden this great, wonderful thing happens. To hang on to and embrace this central truth that even though life is uncertain, God is not uncertain and he still has the entire world in his hands he is sovereign and you say brett that's that's easy for you to say you're not me and you're not going to walk out that door and have to carry this problem that i've got to carry and you're not going to drive that home in your car and worry about it all the way home and when you get home, the problem's still there, Brett. I, listen, I appreciate you, brother. I know it's your job. I know you're just doing what you're supposed to do on Sunday, and I appreciate it. <laughs> but it's not helping me. Because i got to go back to my life. I know. I know. Brett, you're just saying what a preacher's supposed to say. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to say. I get it. I, I understand. I know I've, I've been you. I've sat in a pew and I've listened to a preacher preach over me while I had something going on in my life. And the, what I wanted to say more than anything was, would you just shut up? Don't lie to me. How many of you at least once in your life thought, I wish Brett would just shut up? Right? You ever thought that? It's okay. I know. I've been that guy. Sometimes I am that guy. Do you understand? I'm up here saying all, and, I'm, and inside I'm like, shut up! Or maybe you're new to faith, or maybe you've been burned by the church. 
and you had a bad experience or you watched your parents go through a terrible time and you watched the church just pump sweet niceties out, just say all these platitudes and, and all this nice message and, and you never saw it take hold and you never saw a difference. I get it. I understand. This is not in my notes, but I told this in the first service. It's, it's just perfect for where we are in this message. I just, I got to, it hit me in the middle and I thought, I need to share that. So about two or three years ago, I was asked to go see a man in Indianapolis who had lost both of his legs. He was about my age. He might have been just a little older than me. He was active. I mean, I shook hands with him and it was just like shaking hands with Bam Bam, right? Like, boom, boom, strong as an ox. And I had gone because some friends in, in, in this church, people that I love dearly, had asked me. They were, it was a family member, didn't know Jesus, doesn't go to church. He, it was a medical thing that had cost him his legs. And the, the circumstances at the time, and I don't know how it ever came about, but there was a possibility that a doctor had made a mistake and he had lost his legs. And in walks the preacher. And I introduced myself, and I talked to him and just tried to connect and tried to listen to him. And I knew, you know, can you imagine? It had just happened. His, his legs were still numb. They were, he was still on pain meds. He hadn't even really begun to feel the pain that was going to be associated with all that. And he was generous and kind to me, and he put up with me. And at the end, I made a mistake. I asked him if I could pray with him. I mean, he was gracious. He said, yeah, you, you can pray with me. I'd like that. And I bowed my head, and I started to pray. And as I do, I, there's no script for me. When I pray, it's just, it's just a, a real-life conversation with Jesus, just like I would talk to you. And I started to pray over this man who has lost his legs and everything that I'm praying in my head just sounded like, Brett, you sound, do you hear how stupid you sound? Do you realize how stupid this sounds to this man who's lost his legs, doesn't even, I don't even know if the guy believed in God. And here you are, what are you going to pray? Lord, bless this man. <laughs> really? Lord, Help him to be restored back to his life. Really? I get it. I understand. You've walked in here, and some of you are carrying stuff that is so heavy and so dark and so beyond the pale that I, there's no way I could ever understand what you're going through. And then I get up, and I give you these platitudes like, oh, God is in control. And you're nice. God love you. You're kind. You don't say anything because you know it's my job, but you walk out the door and you go, yeah, that's easy for him to say. Here's what I'd say today. The foundation of what I'm talking about is in here. It's the stories that come out of this book. The foundation is not anything that comes out of my life. And I've been through some darkness, and I've, I've been through my moments, and I've, like I said, I've been that guy where the preacher's preaching, and I just want him to shut up. 
To close today, I want to tell you a story about the life, a day in the life of an old black pastor. Reverend Otis Moss Jr. was born in 1935, a black American male in middle Georgia. When he was 16 years old, he was orphaned which makes him a 16-year-old black American male in middle Georgia in 1951. And he saw the worst that this country has to offer. While he was still a teenager at 19, he decided to go into the ministry and become a preacher. Over the years, he was able to connect with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and build a relationship with him and become a part of that group and he would march with Dr. King in Selma. He would march with Dr. King in Washington, D.C. He became a part of the core group of men and women who would experience things that hopefully no one else in this country ever has to experience again. He experienced the loss of a friend. He experienced the division of a family. And he experienced a level of hate and racism that most of us could not fathom. And he faithfully served Christ in several churches in our great nation over the years. A few years ago, he was in Washington, D.C. for the National Day of Prayer service. This was back during the Barack Obama administration. He was taken to the basement of the National Cathedral with a bunch of other people and told to wait there that President Barack Obama would be coming downstairs to meet them. They would have someone come along and and introduce them by name to the president. He would get to meet the president of the United States. And he was there in the basement talking to another pastor, and they were exchanging stories. Trust me, preachers got stories. We got stories that we only tell to each other. And they were sharing their stories, and all of a sudden, Reverend Moss looked off into the distance, and he said, and we know, as only those great black preachers' voices have, and we know that God causes all things to work to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And can you imagine the all things that dude had seen? He had seen all things on a scale that in my life I may never experience. The all things that he had experienced are much different than the all things that you and I have experienced in our life or will ever experience. And we know that in all things, God works to the benefit of those who love him. And then he turned back and he looked at that pastor with whom he had been waiting and he said, but pastor, sometimes it takes him a while. Sometimes it takes him a while. And then all of a sudden there was movement. And around the corner stepped the first black president of the United States of America. And you can't even begin to understand or appreciate the gravity of that moment for that man as he went forward to shake the hand of history. Reverend Moss is a man who understands, perhaps in a way, 
that I never will, but in a way that we all need to understand that when life is uncertain, God is not, and he is still sovereign, and he is still in control. And he has your world, and he has your family firmly in his hands. He has all our plans, all our finances, all the things that worry us to death in his hands. All those things you lay awake at night worried about, can't sleep, can't go to bed. God, what's going on? He's got it in his hands. Here's a man in his late 70s at the time, has seen things I can't imagine, who was able to say with great confidence, our God works, is active, is present, is evident in all things to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't know what the future holds for our church. I don't know what the future holds for our nation. I don't know what the future holds for my family or for me personally. I don't know any more than anybody else. What I know is, although life is uncertain, God is not. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is in control. And regardless of whether we see or don't see or get to embrace we, we get to embrace a faithful God, even in circumstances when it may be difficult and it might even just seem impossible for us to see his hand at work. God is still in control. It is still a God we can trust. It is still a God we can worship because he is sovereign. Let me pray over you this morning. Father, for the one that's walked in here this morning and they are hanging on by a thread, and they need to hear your voice so badly it's not even funny, and they're on the verge of just giving up. They just they don't even know if they can take one more step. They've dragged their bag of stuff in here, and they know they've got to drag it back out with them and take it home. And they may not be in tears here, but they are in tears at home, and they lay awake at night wondering, how is this going to work out? Well, it's so uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm afraid. I don't feel God at work. I don't sense that he's here. I don't get any sense that there's any movement. Brett talks about blessing. I don't feel any blessing. Father, I pray for them right now that you would give them assurance that you are in control and that you are sovereign and you are certain even in the midst of our uncertainty. Father, we do not make up these stories about these men and women. These are real stories. The story of Jesus going to a cross for me and for these people. That is not some myth. That's not some made-up story. That's you at work showing your certainty, showing your sovereignty, showing in the midst of human suffering and pain on a level we will never know that you are in charge and that you love us. So, Father, for that person that's come in here this morning and they're just at their wit's end, I pray for them. Meet them, please, in this space. Help them to know, sovereign God, I pray all this in the precious, beautiful, holy, wonderful, magnificent name of Jesus.